Let me ask you, I don't know if you have seen this. I don't want to blindside you with this. This is, a, this is um, the latest statement, latest tweet, as you were just saying. The president-elect's latest, latest yeah. unsolicited pronouncement on the intelligence community. This was his tweet just a little while ago tonight. You see the scare quotes there. The yeah. intelligence briefing yeah. on so-called Russian hacking was delayed until Friday. Perhaps more time needed to build a case. Very strange. We're actually told, intelligence sources tell NBC News since this tweet has been posted, that actually this intelligence briefing for the president-elect was always planned for Friday. It hasn't been delayed. Look. But he's, he's taking these... Shots, this antagonism, yep. this taunting to the intelligence tell community. You, you take on the intelligence community, they have six ways from Sunday at getting back at you. So even for a practical, supposedly hard-nosed businessman, he's being really dumb to do this. What do you think the intelligence community would do if they were motivated I don't know, to? but I, from what I am told, they are very upset with how he has treated them and talked about them. And we need the intelligence community. We don't know what's going Look at the Russian hacking. Without the intelligence community, we wouldn't have uh, discovered it. Do you and we, think he has an agenda to try to dismantle parts of the intelligence community? I mean, this form of let me tell taunting you, hostility. Whether you're a super liberal Democrat or a very conservative Republican, you should be against dismantling the intelligence community. All right, Sandy Reels with you on Sandy Reels 24-7. Well, that will give you a hint of what we're going to be talking about today. That was Rachel Maddow and Chuck Schumer, the leader of the Senate now. Uh, they were talking when President Trump had just been elected uh, in 2016, and they were warning. Schumer was warning the president not to mess with the intelligence agencies. He said it very clearly. Well, President Trump did speak out about the intelligence agencies. He fired James Comey because he found out some of the things that they were doing, and he knew that they were untrustworthy. They found out they were surveilling his family, going after his friends, making up things about Russian collusion. or the, He was a Russian operative. But now here's the thing. Regardless of how you feel about Donald Trump, uh, I hope that in your natural response, you understand he's been treated, he's been persecuted, really, by these intelligence agencies and the, the media that carries their water and the politicians that do that as well. But now things have changed because the intelligence agencies have turned their sights on you and on me. And by that, I mean anyone who really still embraces constitutional principles, the Fourth Amendment, uh, the, where the government cannot has, doesn't have a right to seize your property or a breach your privacy, your First Amendment rights, all of that are under attack. And so those of us that are fighting back are now the object of their wrath. Remember, President Trump said, it looks like they're after me, but they're really after you. Some people didn't really understand that until after January the 6th when we saw American patriots, and there were hundreds of thousands of them who went to that Capitol on that day, not necessarily inside, but inside too, uh, because they were exercising their right to democracy, and now they've become an object of wrath to be hunted down and persecuted. And so here we are. <clears throat> what's happened to our intelligence agencies? We're going to talk today to the author of a new book on what's happened to the CIA and the FBI and how they went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. It's actually number one on Amazon in Kindle and also number one on Audible right now. And uh, so you're in for a treat as well, a treat. A serious treat. This is very, very important as we listen to this conversation. And so I hope that you will stay tuned. Uh, this is day one with Mike Waller. 
and uh, we will have a day two with him as well. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, nuts and bolts, this is Sanctity of Life Month, and we honor now the over 65 million babies whose lives have been tragically ended through abortion since Roe. You know, since Roe was overturned, babies' lives are even at greater risk. It's amazing to me, but it's true. You see, the abortion pill accounts for over 50% of all abortions, making this tragedy available to women 24-7. But in the midst of this darkness, there really is a light that shines. Preborn has rescued over 80,000 babies from abortion, and every day they rescue 200 babies. When a woman considering abortion hears her baby's heartbeat and sees her precious baby on ultrasound, her baby's chance at life is doubled. Preborn shares free heartbeats and God's love for mother and child as they need our help. For just $28, the cost of one dinner, you can sponsor an ultrasound to introduce a mother to her baby for the very first time. And by the way, 100% of your donation will go towards saving babies. Will you help us? Go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's preborn.com slash Sandy and make your most generous donation. Uh, Sandy Reels 24-7 can be heard on any podcast network. You can catch us on AFR.net. That's our mothership. Uh, That's where we belong, American Family Radio, but other podcast platforms carry Sandy Reels 24-7 as well. You can write me at Sandy at AFR.net. You can call at 662-821-2040. But for today, take your pencil, take your paper, Put on your thinking cap and sit back and listen to this fascinating, historic unfolding of what's happened to the nation's intelligence agencies on this edition of Sandy Rios 24-7. From American Family Radio, Sandy Rios. We are not called to be nice. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. I think the most important thing we need to demonstrate to our children is genuineness. That we actually believe what we say we believe. A longtime Fox News contributor, Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. Seek justice. Not social justice, but God's justice. What's right and what's wrong. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. We've got to say this is the line. Life is sacred. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something. You take on the intelligence community, they have six ways from Sunday at getting back at you. So even for a practical, supposedly hard-nosed businessman, he's being really dumb to do that. All right, so that's the voice of the um, leader of the Senate right now, Senator Chuck Schumer, talking about President Trump to Rachel Maddow way back, uh, warning President Trump that if he messes with the intelligence agencies, they have six ways from Sunday to get him. And so uh, we know what's happened. Uh, we just have watched, I think, as our intelligence agencies, who we once trusted and depended on, and I'm talking about the CIA and the FBI, uh, we've watched them go from trusted entities joined at the hip with us with love of country, protection of country, uh, to agents that are listening on our conversations, asking banks to turn, turn over our records, knocking at our doors, even with our children there, dragging good people out and arresting them. It is shocking what's happened to America's intelligence agencies. And, of course, we have seen it play out in living color in the headlines in the issue of President Donald Trump. No one can deny that it is rational 
or actually listens to information that it comports with reality can deny that he has been hounded by our intelligence agencies. The Russian collusion was just part of that. But now it's turned on the American people. And I recall President Trump said many, many times, they are not after me. It looks like they're after me, but they're really after you. Well, how in the world did we get there? How did this happen? How in the world did this get here? We have a great book this morning uh, from a guy who has a great mind, who's been uh, researching and studying this for a number of years. He's been involved in intelligence. Uh, The book is called Big Intel, How the CIA and the FBI Went from Cold War Heroes to Deep State Villains. Our author and guest this morning is Michael Waller. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Sandy. You know what? Uh, Let me give you a good introduction because you deserve it. Uh, Mike is a senior analyst for the strategy at the Center for Security Policy. He's the president of Georgetown Research, which is a political risk and private intelligence company. Uh, Mike worked for the CIA in Central America. He did groundbreaking scholarship after the Soviet empire's breakup. He taught history and methods at America's premier intelligence schools. And his work has appeared all over the place, New York Post, Washington Times, and of course, uh, Wall Street Journal and others. But now, of course, he's on the blacklist because he's uh, the guy who has intelligence uh, experience and knowledge, and he's on the good side. He's on the side of the people, the side of the United States. So that's kind of hard, isn't it, Mike? Are there many of you, really, still patriots left coming from that um, that world? Well, you know, I, I was in and around that world, but I wasn't of that world. And for those of that world who who do it, you know, for a paycheck, there are fewer and fewer. They've been hounded out. They've been discouraged. They've been silenced. They've been forced to go along with things they don't believe in. And they have been replaced by a lot of woke people who have no business in the American intelligence community. Yeah. I want to get personal with you just for a second before we get into the larger picture. And I've, uh, you know, I know I've known you for a long time. We were just chatting about that, Mike. Uh, you are a national treasure, and you know, uh, you've taught me a lot about uh, Deep State and all of these things. You've been my guest, of course, many times before, but uh, you worked for the CIA in Central America. So that makes me think, you know, what, what in the world made you, as a young man, choose the CIA? Well, it started out because I was a dupe of a communist movement uh, that took advantage of me being a naive high school kid and was trying to get me to do their work for them under false pretenses. And when I realized what it was all about, I thought, I've got to fight these guys. So it started when I was about 15 years old. Wow. All right. Working for the CIA? Well, fighting these guys. So, there was, But the okay. convenient part was this was in the late 70s, so I, was, I got involved in the anti-nuclear energy movement because I was concerned about the environment, and there was all this hysteria at the time about it. So, so, uh, but then when I, I, they thought I was a promising uh, future militant for them, and uh, they put me in a struggle session of self-criticism and, and to sort of tear me down, and they, they, they said, why are you in this anyway? And I said, well, because I care about you know, a six-foot pipe pushing boiling water from the reactor cooling system into the ocean, and it's right where I'd go fishing with my dad and my grandpa. And they said, you know, basically, you're you're a stupid, naive kid. This is all about overthrowing American capitalism. And that's when I realized, who are these guys? What what am I getting into? No, and so so I 
that was my break right there about a, a few months into it. And then uh, coming into to watch a college to Washington, D.C., in Jimmy Carter's last days in office and casting my first vote for Ronald Reagan by absentee ballot from my dorm room and then getting involved <laughs> with with uh, with with all of that brought me into this new exciting time with this new president who was going to save our country. And I thought, I want to get on this man's team. And so you joined so the I CIA. Thought joining the American Intelligence <laughs> Service would be the way to do it. Yeah. Do these, you know, I uh, got acquainted with... Uh, the Countess de Romanones, who's the one? Who's the one? Uh, she wrote the Spy Who Wore Red, the Spy Who Wore Silk. She was uh, the uh, she was recruited by the OSS during World War II, which was the precursor, you know, of the CIA. Uh, and she, I got to know her, Mike. It was such a joy. And she talked about how she was dropped into uh, Spain. She ended up staying in Spain and posing as a model and. She ended up marrying a count there, but her story is so exciting. But she talks about her training in those big mansions where you're shut off and you get a different name and you learn to kill and all of this. Do they still, is that, the training, does it take place in Virginia or what was that like for you? Well, for me, the training was very different because I was not an employee of the CIA. I was working as sort of a, as still a I was still an undergraduate. And okay. it was uh, the Reagan White House was reaching out to conservatives. I had a conservative student newspaper, and I was running President Reagan's um, national security portfolio for College Republican National Committee at Young Americans for Freedom. So I had a chance to go to Afghanistan, where the where uh, with Ahmad Shah Massoud uh, fighting the Soviet Army, Soviet occupation, and I was all excited to go. And then uh, Faith Whittlesey at the White House said, "Well, you you speak Spanish. You get you can do something better. I'll get you down to Central America." So she sent me down as a student journalist with the Contras, and uh, and I that that got me that got me interested right there because I was in Army ROTC or I had just started the process to get in Army ROTC and I thought this is just run by a depressed Vietnam War vet colonel. Uh, the Army's not doing anything, so I ended up doing my military training with the Contras as an insurgent. And wow. so I got to see the world upside down from an insurgent's point of view against a big power, this time being backed by the United States fighting the communists. And I just it was, sort of just did it on my own. Wow. So that's how you sort of learned the hard way, not the form, not the formulaic way. Well, um, do you have us an idea? I think honestly think I that the, 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 the Americans, you know, CIA is more of a mystery organization, not so well known as the FBI. We're going to get to that. In a second, but the CIA, uh, th- when you joined it, how effective were when you were part of it, affiliated with it? How effective were they, and what were they accomplishing? Well, the CIA had just been recovering from the post Watergate scandals and the Frank Church Committee and all the, the, the where the society was turning against uh, the U.S. intelligence community, or say liberal society was. The the the, uh, the CIA had been created to fight communism to contain. The Soviet Union and Soviet subversion. It did a good job in many parts of the world, and it did a, a terrible job in others, the way any human enterprise would. You know, you have, you have your real victories and your real heroes, and and the exact opposites. So, but what Casey was doing, Bill Casey was Reagan's first CIA director, and uh, he was, he had been in the OSS. He was the guy, young guy, who had the brash idea to parachute behind German lines right after D-Day, and to run sabotage and other operations behind German lines to open things up so that American and Allied troops could march from 
Normandy up to Paris and then to Berlin. So that was him. <laughs> mm-hmm. he, so he parachuted yeah. in dozens of teams. And they said, this couldn't be done. This couldn't be done. But, of course, he didn't know better because the OSS was really a big team of amateurs. We didn't have a professional intelligence service until just a couple of years, you know, a year before we got involved in the war. So Casey was recruiting idealistic and at complete amateur people from all ages and all walks of life, and I ended up being one of them. But he was paying for us out of his pocket. We didn't even know what we were getting into at this time. We just went and did it. Wow. Well, that reminds me of the, the story that uh, uh, Eileen Griffith, who was the, who became the Countess of, in Ramanones, her story, you know, she was just a, a model plucked off the streets in New York, uh, and they made it up as they went along uh, for the OSS. But when it comes to um, spy operations in the United States, Mike, I always think of, you know, going back to the days of the Revolution when George Washington formed uh, a group of spies, Ben Franklin designed and, uh, you know, created all these inventions to help people spy because uh, Washington was wise enough to know that they they needed that in order to win. It was very important. So my understanding, and you know, because you wrote this book, Big Intel, how the CIA and the FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. The CIA actually was birthed, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, after the, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Is that right? Well, that was the, the CIA came after World War II. So the, the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, came right before Pearl Harbor when the, the President Roosevelt and the British said, hey, the United States needs a foreign intelligence service. Because we didn't have one beyond Navy intelligence and Army intelligence. So OSS was set up very quickly, and then it, it really took off uh, right after Pearl Harbor. Okay. So then when it morphed, when did CIA come out of this? When was it birthed? It was birthed a couple of years after World War II. So we had nothing. President Truman abolished the OSS oh, within no a, a month or so of Japan's surrender after World War II, oh, ending World goodness. War II. And the, then we had nothing at all. And then they had to they had to get the band back together a couple of years later when the, when the CIA was created. Now, one of the points that you're going to you make in this book, Mike, and we need to get into it, is... You know, it's interesting to me. I had no idea Truman disbanded the OSS because I'm thinking, you know, that means to me that Americans had no real comprehension of Soviet Russia and communism, not real deep comprehension of that. Uh, And that's kind of the thread that you're weaving through this book, right? The thread where the communists never, they didn't disband uh, and they started infiltrating. Oh, yes, and they did it right away. They, they were infiltrating the U.S. government, you know, during the New Deal. And, in fact, a lot of these do-gooder New Deal programs to employ people, like the Writers Program and so forth, they were hiring American Communist Party members who couldn't get real jobs. So it was keeping them employed to subvert society and government. And one of them was a man named Frank Marshall Davis, who's in the book, oh. who ended up uh, as as sort of the... the uh, the quasi-father of a young man in Hawaii named Barry Obama. So that's in the book, but that's a different, that's a different uh, thing. We, uh, we had no idea, well, let's say much of our society and leadership had no idea what the Soviets were doing to us, because while we were the allies of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was subverting us, because they took the long approach. We were looking at just defeating the Nazis and coming home, defeating right. the Japanese and coming home. The Soviets were looking at 
how can we, you know, what's the world going to look like after the war is over? So they were subverting us all along and subverting our Office of Strategic Service, Intelligence Service, by putting their party members in as American intelligence officers. Well, I think the thing we should state, it's all, you know, we, you and I know this, like because of the times in which we grew up, but uh, the communist movement was a worldwide movement, like Islam is now. Uh, it, it wanted to dominate the world uh, with their system, and it was like evangelical, you might say. And so that was that was the thing I just think that, that America did not understand. So... They, meanwhile, the communists actually, uh, they were allies to us, but they were uh, um, enemies of the Nazis. Because I remember, remember the Reich, I'm telling you, the historian, how the Reichstag was a uh, fire. A, a, a Hitler actually planted the fire that burned down the Reichstag, which was that uh, the uh, the meeting place for the um, people's representatives in Germany, Bundestag. And uh, blamed the communists because they hated the communists so much. What was that all about, Mike? Why did the Nazis hate the well, communists so much? Well, they were socialists of a different type. And uh, nobody's nastier in a fight than a socialist or maybe an anarchist or a jihadist. So, the, yeah, you had in, in Germany, right after World War I, it was, it, was a, you know, it was a powerful, deeply cultured, very sophisticated society with an amazing industrial base and so forth. And Karl Marx, who was, of course, the German, had been, uh, said that the communist revolutions are going to take place in the industrialized countries, where the workers are going to get together and unite to, to throw off their chains against the wealthy bourgeoisie. And this was the whole thing of Marxist, Marxism. It was viewed as, a, as, a, as an economic movement. But that was, in eight, that was started in 1848 when Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. Okay, so we're, we're going back now more than a half a century before then, some, some backfill. But before that, in 1843, Marx started out as a cultural warrior. And his view was that uh, European society and Western civilization, um, the, the whole Greco-Roman history and the Judeo-Christian ethic were all oppressive, and they had to be overthrown and completely destroyed. So Marx was fighting a cultural war at this time. That didn't catch on. So then he went on to the economic side, the materialist side. So now, fast forward back up to right after World War One. You know, Marx has been dead for many years. The Soviets have just taken over Russia. The Bolsheviks had, as, and that that was a German military intelligence operation, by the way, and a German bank operation. So the Reichsbank funded the Bolshevik Revolution, and and brought Lenin and his group back to Russia to, I did not to know overthrow that. the provisional government. Yeah, it's a, it's a wild story. But yeah. so, so what happens now? Germany had, see, because Lenin had wanted to stop the war with Germany so he could fight his own people. And so, so Germany's defeated, and uh, now it's this demoralized country, and Lenin is, okay, we're going to target Germany. But we can't do it in a Bolshevik way with armed movements because the Germans aren't into that. We're going to destroy them as people, destroy their heritage, their history, their morals, their beliefs, their trust in one another, their family unit, everything, and just tear it apart, tear out the center of German society, and then we'll battle the guys on the other side who were the Nazis. And then battle them, and then we communists are going to take over Germany that way. The thing is, Hitler beat them to the punch. 
So they are the communists arguably helped Hitler take power, not wanting to, um, but they helped him take power by tearing out the whole center of Germany, and then Hitler came in. So they had a the communists had a whole school in Berlin that was designed to develop what's called critical theory. This is where we get critical law theory and critical race theory. This was a Soviet covert operation to bring German Marxist intellectuals together for a sexual revolution, a cultural revolution, religious revolution, and you know, anti-Western revolution, all hyped up with sex and drugs back in Berlin in the 20s to just wreck all of German society. Well, you know, where did those people end up going? They came here. These do-gooder groups brought them to America. A, a Soviet agent negotiated with Columbia University for them to set up shop there. And then to what to do? To teach the teachers at the Columbia Teachers College. And so they taught generations of teachers, ultimately, to spread out over public schools and private schools and colleges across America to bring critical theory, and then what we now have critical race theory, and to normalize it, to do to America what they had tried to do to Weimar Germany, which is destroy everybody's faith in everything good, get the people to fight each other, and then bring in a Marxist revolution through the destruction of culture. Mike, let me just interject something for a second, because I, then I want to move on. I mean, this is great stuff, but you you may or may not know that I lived in Berlin, Germany, so I have a, a special interest, of course, in what happened there. And I think about uh, Germany in the 30s. Germany, of course, was the center of the Reform- Reformation. The Reformation was, uh, in, it, no matter what viewpoint you have, it was a, a spark spiritually. Martin Luther did not mean to destroy the Catholic Church. He was a Catholic priest, but it sparked a renewal of faith, a return to Scripture, a return to the Bible. And Germany was in the middle of that, and it spread all over like lightning in Europe. And so, But that just is juxtaposed against, by the 30s, Berlin and Germany, Berlin especially, I'll say city center, was so decadent, so decadent. And so when the Nazis came in, it's not that much of a surprise that the Nazis, it shouldn't be, that the Nazis were able to overwhelm the church and replace the cross with a swastika. Because now I understand the society had been purposely decayed and the people cooperated. People actually want to be decayed. They kind of like that, but they were turned and so that laid the groundwork. So now you say they, those lovely people with those plans came to Columbia. That makes sense because Columbia and I think University of Wisconsin, aren't they kind of like the birthplaces of communism in this country? They're, they're the intellectual ones, yeah, because we didn't have that tradition in America. We didn't have a communist movement really till, till uh, right after World War I. We, and the communists who were here, they were not descendants of the founders of our country with our principles. They were immigrants from Europe who were communists and anarchists and radical socialists who were being forced out of Europe because they wanted to overthrow their own systems back home. But instead of being Americanized here, they became revolutionaries here. So in Big Intel, I write about how Leon Trotsky, Lenin's right-hand man, the founder of the Red Army, was actually in New York City in early 1917 to organize revolutionary groups among the immigrant community, and mainly Brooklyn, and to to tell the American Socialists, the American Socialist Party actually made him an officer of the party, um, said, your job here is to overthrow this, this damn capitalist 
society that you have, in his almost exact words. And uh, and then he, he went back because he the Tsar had been overthrown by socialist rivals of his, so he had to go back to Russia to finish the job. Um, but but he was here organizing, and you had all these Soviet agents in the earliest days of the Bolshevik regime organizing people in the United States, both immigrants and then children of immigrants, so that uh, to, to to infiltrate our society at every level and overthrow it. There was a young man in the Justice Department. Our Justice Department then was very small, uh, and uh, his job, he was in his early 20s, his job was to identify and round up all the foreign communists, radical socialists, and anarchists that he could, and deport them all to Russia. His name was J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> I thought that's where you were going. Uh, yeah, because because that yes. was where, because we were having so many disturbances in this country, and so he had a passion to stop. He saw what was happening. But the FBI was known, Mike, uh, as you know, Federal Bureau of Investigation for bank robberies and G-men, and it was a marvelous period of time for them in terms of their reputation as the real lawmen, rugged, you know, going out where no one else would go and turning back criminals. But the other part of it that maybe is lesser known is this fight against communism because we know what after, like in, in the 60s, our 70s, and gradually in the 80s, we weren't allowed to talk about communism. It's like we, you were an idiot if you mentioned that term. You probably remember that. Right. Uh, and so, oh, yeah, yeah. And then, and then the teacher who recruited me was a communist. I didn't know. I just thought he was a, kind of a, a cool guy, and, and I had no idea that he, he, he had, you know, but he was really a Marxist-Leninist. It, it was, uh, and that's the thing, when you realize that you've been had, when you've been duped, when other people have used you and taken advantage of your idealism, um, a lot of people just have a defeated attitude or they dismiss it. Uh, some of us just say, you know what, uh, I'm going to fight this stuff. And so I'm really happy, um, you know, blessed to have had that experience uh, to, as a kid to understand this because I want to devote the rest of my life to fighting these people. It is, uh, it is so twisted. Kind of like it's... Hoover himself, because when, when, sorry, when Hoover was, was, um, he was just in his, his, like 23 years old, roughly 24 years old. So he was, he was, identifying thousands of foreign radicals to be rounded up and deported. And he actually led a congressional delegation to New York. He requisitioned a retired U.S. Navy vessel from World War One, and had these people loaded on the ship and sent to Russia. Oh. It was amazing. So that he didn't start out as a lawman. And so and we didn't have an FBI then, even though the FBI says it, it, it was founded in 1908. It really wasn't. It was just a small, tiny bureau within the Justice Department called the Bureau of Investigation. But it's like another bureau, you know, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing or the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, they had, a, a, with Prohibition, they had a Bureau of Prohibition. So it was just one narrowly defined agency. So Hoover built that up when with the rise of interstate organized crime. But, but before then, all he was doing was fighting the communists and anarchists. But now, Mike, we know uh, J. Edgar Hoover now. We know him as a, a cross-dresser who had, a, it seems, a, a, his assistant was really his gay lover. That's how he's portrayed in America right now. Well, right, yeah, well, well, yes. And if, you know, if it was true, the FBI is so crazy woke now where it, it's like a, it's a, they put the rainbow flag before the stars and stripes. And and they have a, in, in in Big Intel. I actually go through a fifty-six page tr- 
training session on how every FBI employee must be LGBTQ plus allied. Quote, it's, it has to be an ally. Even though 90, what, 98.4% of the FBI is straight. Uh, they try to make it as diverse as they can, but they, they can't do it year after year. But they're forcing this on everybody. So this is so. So if if there was any truth to that story about Hoover being either a uh, a closet gay or a trans of any kind, uh, he would be brought out as a role model. But I looked That's into this point. and talked That's to a, a lot of people point. about it, and then I finally decided this is such a deep issue. Other people have done the real spade work on it. Um, so, so I quote two scholars, Beverly Gage and, and, a, uh, and a Pulitzer journalist, uh, Tim Weiner, who wrote some fantastic books about the FBI and Hoover. And they're both liberal critics of, of, of Hoover. And they said there's no truth to these stories. And well, it, honestly, it, it started out because here's, here's Hoover. He, his, his father was mentally ill back at a time when you could not talk about mental illness because it meant weakness. And so his father could no longer be the breadwinner. So he became the breadwinner of the family. And he took his father died, and he took care of his mother until he was forty three years old. He stayed home, you know, at the family home, and he lived with his mother to take care of her until she passed away. So he's forty three, and he had had he had had a girlfriend before who he was very involved with and loved her very much. But he thought, I can either be an FBI director to save America from communists and anarchists and gangsters, or I can be a husband, but I can't be both. So when his mother passed away, so he, he so he took a vocation like a like a monk, like a warrior monk would take a vocation, and uh, and so his roommate was also his right hand guy, uh, Clyde Tolson, within the bureau. But of course, there were all these rumors about him, and, and people who who hated Hoover at the time because you know he had a lot of rivals within the federal government, and they they had rumors about him, and then. Um, and actually, the Kennedys, uh, uh, Attorney General Kennedy, had Hoover investigated to see if they could get some dirt on him, and came back and said, "No, this guy's just a workaholic." So there's no there's no truth to the uh, no evidence to the to the uh, idea that he was either gay or a crossdresser. He was just a guy who was completely focused on being director of the FBI. You know, Mike, it's uh, it's really good to hear you say that because I've always told, you know, I, my husband is a former FBI agent. And I, uh, I've always said there that just smells of uh, of, a, of an attack like they're doing with uh, a Donald Trump, like they did with, uh, like they did with President Bush, uh, just disparaging, creating a caricature that's just the opposite of what the person is uh, to destroy them. And uh, that I've always felt that way. So it's interesting. I'm glad to have you confirm that. Well, we're having a discussion with Mike Waller, who is has just written this book called Big Intel: How the CIA and FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. It is a great read, and we have just scratched the surface. You just heard about the beginnings of the of the FBI and the CIA, but the question is, what went wrong, and how can we turn it back? And we're going to get to those next two issues with another discussion with Mike Waller. And I want to re- recommend this book to you. This is just a great read. And, of course, Mike is a historian. His stuff... So many of these books come and go, and they're irrelevant, uh, and they're still good reads, and you still need to know about the, the things. But Mike has done a history that I think will have a much longer shelf life because we do need to understand what's happened to our intelligence agencies. So I can't recommend it enough. You can order it anywhere. Books are sold, Amazon. Uh, you can even get it at Costco. 
So, uh, I mean, there, just wherever you find books, it's called Big Intel, How the CIA and FBI Went from Cold War Heroes to Deep State Villains. So we will continue our discussion in the next few moments, uh, the, just what happened. Bring it up to date. What happened with Comey? What happened with the Russian collusion? What happened with all of that? And how did we go wrong? That will be the topic of part two with Mike Waller, the author of Big Intel, How the CIA and FBI Went from Cold War Heroes to Deep State Villains. In the next episode of Sandy Rios 24-7. This is Sandy Rios 24-7 on American Family Radio. During this Sanctity of Life Month, I'm just so happy that Preborn is our sponsor, that we can partner with them, that you can partner with me. It's a beautiful thing, really, to save so many babies' lives, really save them, not theoretically, but really and truly save them by providing ultrasound for women to see their babies and make a different choice. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of, and I think you feel that way or you would not have helped so generously during our first year together. This is our second year together now. So all you have to do is go to preborn.com slash Sandy and make your most generous donation. And by the way, if you have the means, would you consider a leadership gift to save babies in a bigger way? Your tax-deductible donation of $5,000 will sponsor Preborn's entire network for 24 hours, helping to rescue 200 babies. To donate, all you have to do is go to preborn.com slash Sandy. That's Preborn.com slash Sandy. Please respond if and then we're going to have follow-up questions. this stuff is true about Russia, Ukraine, China, other countries, Iraq, if this is true, then he's a corrupt politician. Right. So don't give me the stuff about how you're this innocent baby. Joe, they're calling you a corrupt politician. Nobody's President calling President Trump, I want to stay hell. on the issue Excuse of race. Me. We're Take talking about the, the issue. from hell. President Trump, Nobody. we're talking about race right now, and I do want to stay on the issue of race. President Trump, you've I have dis- to respond to that. Please. Because, look, Very there are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. They have said that this is, has all the care. Four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. Nobody believes it except the, his and his good friend, Rudy Gianni. You mean the laptop is now yeah. another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? And that's exactly be. what is this that's where exactly you're going? What this is told. where he's going. The that, laptop right. is Russia, yes. Russia, Gentlemen, Russia? I want to stay on the issue of race. You okay? have to be kidding. Here Mr. we go President? again with Russia. All right, so that was an exchange none of us will forget. That was in the debate between President Trump uh, against uh, Joe Biden and that moment when it was the first time we heard that 50 intelligence agents had signed a letter saying that the Hunter laptop, which contained pornography, pictures of Hunter in the buff and worse, smoking crack with prostitutes, everything and even things you cannot mention, that was a verified laptop. We knew the receipts were there. Uh, we knew it was his laptop. And so because 50 former intelligence agents signed a letter saying it was Russian, Russian disinformation, you heard President Trump's incredulity. Uh, the New York Post uh, wrote an expose on why that was not true, and it was taken down from Twitter. It was banned uh, on uh, the Internet. You could not find that story, and the, the the media ran with it like crazy. There's nothing to that laptop. It's Russian disinformation. It was a lie, 
a lie, a lie from the pit of hell. But that's where we are. Okay, I've asked my husband, Mr. Former FBI agent, to join me. He's been listening to this discussion. And I, I just am uh, curious to know where he stands on this and what, what he heard that he wants to comment on, honey. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Uh, there's so much to talk about, really. And um, uh, not to go into a whole history lesson, but really to put this all in context, I think it really is important to go back to the very foundings of our nation. And uh, after we fought the Revolutionary War, we set up a representative republic. And that was set up really to keep people free from the oppression of the government. That's why we left the, the uh, arms of England was because they were oppressing people. And uh, now fast forward into the 19th and 20th century, and communism starts to rise in the world. And if you look at the tentacles of communism, it is in direct opposition to what the United States is supposed to be. Communism is a centralization of all things under the government. Our charter is the exact opposite. It's the diversification, the thinning out of government to leave us alone and let us live our lives with minimal intrusion. Yeah, and let me just say, you know, the American way was individualism. Every person important, every person equal. In communism, it's the, the masses, and the people are, you know, an object to an into an object that they don't have their value. Their lives have no value. And when you have two systems of government like that, they collide. And being being that men are men, uh, we always want our way. So communism started to become a problem here in the United States. And J. Edgar Hoover was at the vanguard of fighting communism. You know, a lot of people uh, have diminished J. Edgar Hoover. They dismiss him as a, a weirdo, uh, uh, seeing ghosts everywhere, leading a weird life, um, doing nothing but uh, ac- accumulating power. I am not here as a former employee of the FBI to say that J. Edgar Hoover was an infallible man, but I will go to the mat to defend J. Edgar Hoover in his his understanding, his appreciation of the dangers of communism. And it goes back to 1920. He was witness to, in 1920, there was a bombing of Wall Street that was done by a communist organization. And a gentleman that was J. Edgar Hoover's direct supervisor was injured in that bombing. So he had a, a, a front row seat to the dangers of communism, and that's where he started his... His mission. Yeah, his mission against to, uh, to go after communism. Um, and, you know, uh, we're talking about both the FBI and the CIA in this book, and they have different missions. The FBI is, their mission is to protect the American people. If you read their mission statement, it is to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution of the United States. The CIA's mission statement is to gather and share intelligence to protect our nation from threats. They are not bound by the Constitution. And there's a good reason to keep the FBI and the CIA apart. The the FBI tends to matters that are, are domestic, that are within our borders. The CIA handles operations that benefit the United States 
outside of our borders. And, you know, a, a lot of people do not understand the mission of the CIA. And it is murky to a degree. But you have to remember, America, we are blessed as the big boy on the block. And a lot of nations are don't have anywhere near the capability of us. And we have a lot of um, nations out there that we either wish to help the current government or if it's a government in opposition to the United States, we wish to help the people that might be trying to overthrow them either through uh, voting means, democratic means, or sometimes military needs. And a lot of people question, well, why do we give away so much foreign aid to all these countries? And I'm, I'm with you. Uh, sometimes it seems silly, but I have to tell you, a lot of the reason for that is so that we can um, gain cooperation from these countries when we need help. You know, when something happens in the Middle East and we have to go over there and uh, find out who attacked us, it's hard to start up every time from ground zero. We have to have people that are in place. And a lot of this foreign aid goes to establishing relationships with these countries so they will help us. So let's go back to the book. So now you have communism coming into the United States. And, you know, our government has been our own worst, gov- our own worst enemy in fighting communism in many cases. Um, we had a secretary of state named Henry Stimson under uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. World War II is, is on the horizon. Um, it's already started in Europe, and uh, Japan was making a lot of noises about attacking the United States. And we had actually broken the codes of the Japanese military and some other uh, foreign enemy militaries. And Stimson's uh, response to this was he shut down those programs of reading their intelligence, reading their messages, because he said, gentlemen, don't read other gentlemen's mail. <laughs> Think about the idiocy of that. Yeah. And, you know, people wonder, how did, how did Pearl Harbor happen without us knowing? Well, I don't know. I can't tell you exactly. But I can tell you, when you stop reading other people's intelligence that are hostile to you, uh, you're setting yourself up for failure. Now, Bruce, we know that the Communist Party infiltrated the cabinet, uh, uh, had cabinet-level spies under the Franklin uh, Roosevelt era, and also, I'm sure, continued after that, people we don't even know. Uh, but we don't know anything about Stimson, whether he had connections. We don't know. Uh, but that was that's I, I a pretty was, big... I think he was an ideologue. You know, he, he was sort of an elitist, I believe. And, uh, you know, and it, it, it floors me because he had been a, a brigadier general in the U.S. Army during World War One. Now, he's a guy that should understand should know. Uh, what it is to fight somebody. But somehow, I, you know... We blind ourselves sometimes by we think we can outfriend people. Oh, yes. And if, if we're nice to them, they won't hurt us. And one of the ways they think we're being nice is to leave them alone. And nothing could be further from the truth. We have to be vigilant. That's what we've done with Islamists, you know. I, we've had that discussion on the air. I want to mention uh, one big thing that I omitted because the deep-rooted difference between Communism and the American system was a belief in God. Communism said there is no God. And so out of the pit of hell comes this thing where people don't matter. They are not individuals. It's the collective. And from the heart of God comes 
Every person matters. Every life matters. Every hair of your head is counted. You all have worth. So really that manifests itself in politics and political systems. So that's really the root of the the war against uh, our system and communism. You know, I'm reading a book right now called The Wall of Honor, and it's about the people that have given their lives on behalf of the CIA. And I'll be honest, I, I have never understood quite the depth of what the CIA does. They are very important to us. They are uh, really doing the dirty work for us in many occasions because when, when you are the United States, people want to take you down, and you have to fight dirty sometimes. And, and the CIA uh, often is involved in these covert operations, funding um, insurgent groups, people like that. Um, it's a fascinating book. We've made many mistakes. Uh, you cannot be involved in the kind of work that the CIA does and not have some mistakes. Um, you know, you're, you're, oftentimes you're trusting people that you really don't know much about. Uh, I can speak from personal experience. I had a, an informant when I was in the FBI who had been supposedly been a member of the uh, Egyptian army a colonel, and I'm telling you, I, no matter how many times I met with him, I never quite was sure if he was what he really said. Yeah, and that's so that's what they're dealing with all the time. Also, Bruce, correct me if I'm wrong, a CIA agent who operates in a, a some foreign hostile place around the globe, if they get in trouble or get killed or even get arrested, they... It's not like the Army where they don't leave a man behind. They really are sacrificing themselves, right? They are often on their own. And in this book I'm reading, they talk about some of the people that have given their lives. And the government has told the family of these agents complete lies about how they died, where they died, when they died. And sometimes it's taken 30 years for the people to find out what actually happened to their relatives. Well, even now, I know a lot of people who have been in the CIA who will not say it even now. Uh, like 50 years ago, their dad was, and they'll just, it's always couched. Oh. Or that the most thing that they will ever say is they're, they're with the agency. With the agency. Yes, with the yeah. agency, yeah. And that's but, good. I mean, it is good yes. to keep a, a cover, but uh, it is it is an agency unlike any other. Yeah, I agree, Bruce. And so, all right, well, that's that's kind of a history today of how we got a CIA, at least a brief history. Of course, the book, Big Intel, how the CIA and FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains uh, by Mike Waller. We'll tell you a lot more. But tomorrow we're going to get into, well, okay, so why does this matter and how are we in this mess that we're in now? Uh, how about James Comey? How about the uh, Christopher Ray? How about the FBI now really turning against the people? How is that possible? We'll have that discussion tomorrow. But meanwhile, this is Sandy Rios on Sandy Rios 24-7, and you know that you can write us at sandy at afr.net, sandy at afr.net. You can find us on social media platforms across the globe. You can also find us on podcast platforms, afr.net is our home base. But any podcast platform that you're familiar with, we will be there. And so uh, I hope that you've enjoyed today's edition of Sandy Rios 24-7.